Let's turn in our Bibles to uh, the 21st chapter of Revelation. And uh, we come tonight to the last of our series here. And uh, we, of course, have said that the uh, book of Revelation was... uh, was laid out and you can take different approaches to it and uh, of course they're not they're, they can't all be right uh, one approach is right or there and another's wrong if one is right another's wrong and so on and we've taken the parallel approach versus the linear approach where we've said instead of thinking of all these chapters coming after one another that actually you're you're cycling back uh, over the same period of time, the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, and uh, that uh, you're seeing and like different snapshots of it, uh, the seven letters to the seven churches, Christ among the lampstands, the church holding out the light during this period of time. And then uh, when the... Uh, when the lamb uh, goes to the thrown there and uh, takes uh, uh, this scroll and starts opening the seals of the scroll and different horses ride out. This was persecution of the church as it holds out the light. And then the last seal had the seven trumpets. And as a trumpet as warns is blown, why then something happens. A third of agriculture, a third of the life in the sea is destroyed and so on. These are judgments God sends on the world as it persecutes the church. And then you had the two witnesses and and here the period was represented as 42 months or three and a half years, which uh, is another way of symbolizing this time between the first coming and second coming because of a similar time in the Old Testament, during which time the Word of God demonstrated its power, but the church was persecuted and yet protected and nourished by God. And uh, those two witnesses represent the church witnessing during this whole time. And you have at the end of the period there where the two witnesses are overcome and uh, their witness is finished. And that's, there's a time coming when uh, the church will be overcome in the world in the sense of not able to carry on a open uh, witness because of this final uh, great attack on the church. And then we move behind the scenes in chapter 12 uh, where we had uh, the woman, the dragon, and the man-child that she gives birth to. And, and uh, so behind all this persecution of the a church by the world is Satan uh, persecuting Christ and hating Christ. And and again, you had a three and a half year period there where uh, the woman, the church, uh, flees into the wilderness where she's protected and nourished by God. And and then the Satan can't get at her, the dragon can't get at her, so he goes after her children, uh, those who keep uh, the testimony of Christ and are faithful and so on, individual Christians. And, uh, and then we saw the dragon's helpers, uh, the uh, beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth with the horns like a lamb, the false prophet. So here's uh, the world in its persecuting power represented as a beast. That helps the dragon as Satan as he stirs up the world to persecute. And the false teachers, false religion helps the dragon. And you had a third helper who is the harlot. And uh, that pictures the world and all of its allurement and temptation as, as this harlot uh, has... Uh, the things that she holds out and so on to, the, to attract us. But then individually they are overthrown. And uh, then uh, we finally came to the 19th chapter where you had uh, Christ come riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven. That was this big 
picturing again the second coming of Christ. You get it pictured a number of times as we go through. And that's picturing it again as we move up to that again. And uh, then in the 20th chapter, we had the thousand-year period during which time Christ, uh, the Satan was bound. And we said, once again, we backed up. And that thousand-year period represents the period between Christ's first coming and second coming. Satan's bind, binding is not a total binding, but a relative binding. It occurred at the first coming of Christ. He's been bound ever since. Uh, Jesus referred to Satan as bound at his first coming. He said, how can you enter in the strong man's house and spoil his goods except first you bind the strong man? Then you'll spoil his goods, which he was doing as he cast demons out of people and as he delivered them from Satan's kingdom. And uh, <clears throat> uh, so uh, towards the end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed for a little season. He goes out and gathers the nations for this final great battle. And they, they encompass the beloved city in the camp of the saints. We said that's probably representing a, a worldwide attack on the church. And Antichrist would be involved at this point, uh, heading all this up in a sense. Uh, but uh, uh, that uh, uh, this uh, it also would involve an attack on Jerusalem per se. And uh, we found that when we tied this in with Zechariah 12 through 14, that uh, right close to the second coming of Christ and part of this great final attack on the church and apparently Jerusalem itself would be involved and in the middle of that they would have their eyes open to the fact that Jesus Christ was God the Son and their Messiah. And it says, They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, deeply repentant. And it says, And uh, be poured out on them a spirit of grace and prayer, supplication. And it says, a uh, fountain will be opened to them for sin and for uncleanness. So here's the conversion of Israel. And uh, yet in this attack, uh, the city falls, the houses are rifled, the women are raped, but suddenly God intervenes. And that's the second coming of Christ. And and uh, that was that's what it says in Zechariah. We're tying that in with the end of this thousand-year period. Satan is loosed, and as he goes and makes war, then suddenly... Uh, fire falls from heaven and devours him. He's thrown into the lake of fire. You have a final judgment where they all stand before him and uh, they're separated. And uh, that's that's the... Uh, <clears throat> brings us up and says earth and sky are destroyed. And that burden brings us up to where we are tonight where you have the new heavens and new earth. So uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great book, uh, Revelation, that uh, pictures these things in such memorable and dramatic ways, Lord. And it's certainly not easy to interpret, and we certainly uh, don't want to be dogmatic, and we certainly realize there's difference, Father, uh, room for difference in this area with those who would interpret it differently. But, Father, we uh, see however we interpret it, that uh, there are two great sides in the battle here, and that uh, your side is the winning side, and uh, we take great comfort in that, which you meant for us to do through this book. And we also are challenged to be faithful. And Father, we pray that as we read about the new heavens and new earth and uh, the blessings that await, Father, that our hearts would be encouraged and, and fired up, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's look in at Revelation 21. And, you know, in Genesis, uh, it describes a paradise uh, which was lost, and a Revelation here, 21, Paradise Restored. Uh, Genesis describes uh, the cunning power of the serpent. And in Revelation, the serpent is hurled into the lake of fire. 
Uh, Genesis describes a man, in fact, describes uh, man, sinful man, fleeing and hiding. And Revelation describes man restored to communion with God. Uh, Genesis describes man as barred from the tree of life. In Revelation, we have access to the tree of life. Notice this vision of the new heaven and the new earth here, Revelation 21. It says, after we had torn, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong thing. Here we go. Uh, It says, then I saw a new heaven and uh, a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, here's this existence uh, of the new heaven and new earth, the vision of it. And this correlates with other scripture. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 65, written 700 B.C., you find this new heaven and new earth being prophesied. And here's what it says in Isaiah 65 and verse 17. Behold, I will cause a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. Uh, For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. And I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. And so on. So here's this new heaven, new earth that God will create, prophesied in uh, Isaiah 65 and in 66 also. And and in Zechariah 14 also, but uh, there, as we looked at that last week, we saw that he depicts that new heaven and new earth in terms uh, that could make you think, if you weren't careful, that in this new heavens and new earth, uh, there would be those who didn't worship the Lord or uh, something like that. And, uh, and and yet when you read it carefully, you find that everything there, the bells on the horses are holiness to the Lord. Every pot is holiness to the Lord. Everything in here is holiness to the Lord. And so you do find Zechariah, I think, referring to this same thing after that fall of the city and when God intervenes suddenly and comes with his holy ones. Second Peter, or well, Romans 8 where uh, uh, Paul talks about that the whole world groans and travails now, uh, waiting the manifestation of the sons of God when Christ returns and our bodies are raised and so on. And it said all of creation is standing on tiptoe, is the way Phillips translates that, waiting that. When it creation will be set free from the bondage that it's been under uh, as due to the curse. And so here's uh, Romans 8 looking forward to that. And then, Second Peter 3, classic, where it says, uh, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works of the air shall be burned up. Uh, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. And in light of these things, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holiness and, and uh, so on. So <clears throat> there's uh, other scripture that tie in with this idea of a new heaven and new earth. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And uh, while we look for a new heaven and new earth, there's a sense in which we are beginning, even now, to partake of that new creation uh, when we become Christians. We're, we're starting to move in that direction. We've uh, we uh, got the down payment, so to speak, on this. And, uh, and uh, so it's, it's something that, to some degree, gets introduced now in our lives but, of course, it will be perfected then. 
So in one sense, it's present uh, in, to some degree and in particular future. And uh, God dwells now with his people, uh, but then he'll dwell with them in perfection and so on. Uh, there's the existence of a new heaven and new earth, the passing of the first heaven and the first earth. Uh, you had that a number of times uh, as we've gone through where we saw where this heaven and this earth pass away. We had it uh, in Revelation 6, for instance. Let me read you that. In Revelation 6, uh, we already quoted it in Second Peter, but in Revelation 6:14. It says this, The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, over and over as we've gone through the book, we've seen a reference like that. Again, that gives us this parallelism. It's not that we've gone in a linear way until we get to the return of Christ and then the destruction of heaven and earth. We hit it in the 6th chapter. We keep hitting it as we go along. We hit it in the 11th chapter. You hit it over and over. And uh, uh, the... the uh, Absence of the sea. It says here in uh, Revelation 21, there was no more sea. And in, in symbolism, which is what we're dealing with in the book of Revelation, the sea is a picture of unrest and uh, a conflict. And that's where the beast uh, came out of. Uh, the nations are in turmoil and so on, the wars, uh, all that type of thing. So there won't be any of that in this new heaven and new earth. Now, then you get the revelation of the holy city, New Jerusalem, in verse 2 of Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Uh, notice the... This is the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> this uh, really is it's the bride of Christ. It's the church, pictured as a city. And uh, uh, the, uh, you have <clears throat> it's, the, it's the new Jerusalem, or the, the Jerusalem which is above, which is the mother of us all. Uh, we sing the song, O Zion, haste, thy mission high fulfilling, to tell to all the world that God is like. Zion is the church. Well, Jerusalem was built on Zion. That was a hill there. And uh, while we sing, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. That's the church. That's us. And so here's the church in its perfected form. And uh, is the bride of Christ. And notice this coming down out of heaven. There's a sense in which it always comes down. Now you read in Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, You've not come to the mountain that smoked with fire, Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments are given, if you've come to Christ. You didn't stay at that mountain. You've come to the mountain, to Mount Zion. It says this. It says, uh, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Who are righteous men made perfect? Folks in heaven. Uh, you are righteous, but you ain't made perfect. Okay? But you will be. 
And this is the spirits of righteous men. So what he's saying is, you who become Christians, you're part of this heavenly Jerusalem, this Mount Zion, that, that the earthly Jerusalem typified. That's what you're part of, this company of, of the firstborn here. And uh, so it's, in a sense, this new Jerusalem is constantly coming down from heaven, incorporating people into it. And yet there will be the day when it's uh, perfect and complete in this new heavens and new earth. Uh, the manifestation of God's presence. It says God will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Uh, here's this perfected communion. And again, we've hit that before as we've gone through the book. And uh, you think of uh, over and over the covenant promise. I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. Over and over as you go through scripture, that's the covenant promise. And here's the fulfillment of it. God will be with them. He will be their God. They will be his people. Uh, the situation of those in the city, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Uh, so, Here's the assurance of these things. No more death. Uh, man alive. And uh, God wants us to know this. It's crucial. It'll help you live when the going gets rough. It'll help you confess Christ when it's tough to confess Christ. Remember what it says about Abraham? It talks about, He looked for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And God promised Abraham there was such a place. And he, he looked for a city that hath foundations. How did God promise him that? He told him I'd give him the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. That's not a very clear promise about heaven. But Abraham got to thinking about that promise. And he said, you know what? I'm going to die. How can I have this land as an everlasting possession? I believe God is promising me another land that I'll go to when I leave here. I'm so sure that I'm not going to build a home down here. I'm going to live in a tent. And God's not ashamed to be called his God because he's prepared such a city. There is such a place. And uh, so conviction, he says, these words are true and faithful. You build your life on this. Uh, think about Pilgrim's Progress. When Pilgrim's on his way to the celestial city and he meets atheists, and atheist says, where are you going? Well, I'm going to the celestial city. And he said, there isn't such a place. And Pilgrim talks to atheists a little while, and he says, I'm going to quit talking to you. You are not helping me. <laughs> Amen. Uh, the uh, condition of entering the city, in verse 6, he says, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink, without cost, free, without cost, from the spring of the water of life. Uh, notice the condition of entering. Uh, uh, you got God in Christ, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, the invitation to drink. Uh, he will give to drink freely. But the condition of entry there, it says in verse 7, He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. And notice this free, without cost, this water of everlasting life that he gives freely to drink to the one who's thirsty. But you must overcome. 
Uh, you must fight your way to heaven. We've often talked about when, well, it's kind of like when uh, you become a Christian, uh, and the Lord uh, gives you this scroll, and you say, what is that? And he says, that's your legal clearance, that's your justification. You're on your way to heaven, your sins are forgiven, you're adopted into my family. You say, praise the Lord. Then he gives you a sword and a shield and a helmet. And you say, what is this? He says, that's your weapons. Well, what for? You've got to fight your way to heaven. Well, I thought you said I was going there. You are. Well, who do I have to fight? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, uh, how strong are they? Very strong. Well, suppose they overcome me, then you're not going to heaven. Well, I thought you said I was going to heaven. You are. Well, I don't understand. Oh, well, I'm going to give you myself to live within you and cause you to overcome. And uh, the evidence that he really does live within us as we overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And uh, how does he cause us to overcome? Well, he, he puts us in a Cadillac and drives us up there without any... Pr- no. No, he, he warns us and he encourages us. Uh, you're in control of a football game. Auburn is playing Alabama. And uh, you're the Auburn coach. And you have determined that uh, your man's going to make a touchdown. And you can control the game. How are you going to have him make a touchdown? Well, every time as an opposing player, you just lift him up and put him... No, that wouldn't be a touchdown. Uh, you have him make the touchdown. And you run alongside of him and you encourage him. And you say, come on, you can do it. You Come on, come run, run. And then you want him to break your neck. <laughs> and he makes a touchdown. <laughs> and you called him with your warnings and so on. Well, God warns and God encourages and he works within. So we respond to the warnings. We respond to the encouraging. And we overcome. And true believers overcome. And that's the route to heaven. Now, uh, so, to him that overcome it, he says, uh, I will uh, give to eat here. <clears> he <throat> uh, says, I will be his uh, God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... Uh, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, uh, notice the exclusion of all others. Cowards. Unbelievers. Those who maybe said they believed, but they didn't stand up when they had to confess Christ before men. Jesus said, if you don't confess me, I won't confess you before my Father. And so on. Uh, and so, <clears throat> here's this awful division. Now, the description of the city. In verse 9, it says, uh, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now these, these plagues, remember we said those seven bowls of plagues, those represented, you had the trumpets that represented warning, and the last plagues represented uh, when judgment, is final judgment in a sense, is poured out. And those bowls are being poured out all along. For instance, take... Sodom and Gomorrah. When Sodom and Gomorrah experienced a bowl being poured out on them, that was it for those people. But it was a trumpet for everybody else. And uh, so those bowls are being poured out all along, but there'll be a final board, a final bowl being poured out at the end of the world and the destruction of heaven and earth and so on. Uh, the, but this angel comes to him and uh, he says, uh, and, uh, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of every of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were twelve gates on the east and on the north. And, excuse me, three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Uh, here's the church represented, and the, the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles, the whole church, Old Testament and New Testament church, uh, uh, all all the believers of all ages. The 144,000 we read about earlier who will be saved. This is the church. This, that's just a symbolic number. Three times uh, four is 12 <coughs> times uh, 12, you're 144, or here's your, uh, <coughs> the, and that's the same, just cubic size here as you get this. He talks about uh, uh, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold. He measured the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide, actually a cube. He measured the city with a rod, and it was 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it was long. And so it was a cube. He measures its walls, and it was 144 cubits thick. By man's measurement. This is, we say, this is uh, the <clears throat> Trinity, three, working throughout the world. Four is twelve times twelve. Uh, this is your, all the work of God throughout all the ages as he calls in all true believers to be with him, be a part of that, he brings them to himself. The wall would, of course, speak of safety here. And uh, uh, the materials, this is Jasper and all that, uh, says uh, <clears throat> the... Uh, uh, verse seven, eighteen. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, and so on. And uh, the verse twenty-one says the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each gate was made of a single pearl. Again, this is not literal. This is just the beauty of the church. And its perfected form here is being symbolized. And uh, it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. So here are the missing items. A temple. The inhabitants don't go to a temple somewhere because they are the temple. He dwells with them. And... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the <clears throat> whole city is a tabernacle, and they are the sanctuary, and the, and the Lord is the light of it. And the inhabitants, in verse 24, it says, uh, well, verse uh, 24, The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, here are people from every tongue and tribe and nation that are part of this. And the doors are open to this, day and night. There's always, in a sense, uh, the invitation here. Abundant opportunity to enter by faith. But, the restriction there, nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. Uh, who practices that. They won't have that in the city there. Uh, Now, the implications of this new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, uh, make it an object of pursuit. You want to be there. I want to be there. I have to fight my way there. 
And, uh, that, you know, those who overcome go there. And uh, that takes effort on my part. Not that I do it in my own strength. Uh, but you fight like David fought Goliath. Relying on the Lord, you fight. And you will overcome and you will enter. But uh, he's challenging us to fight. And my object of expectation. I believe it is there. I believe I'm headed there. I believe I will be there. Not that I deserve it. And uh, praise God, you know. Uh, they look for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So uh, make it an object of expectation here. Now, uh, we have the Revelation 22, the river of life and the tree of life in the first five verses of this. It says, uh, Then the angel showed me the river of water of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. Now, this river of the water of life, God's grace here, uh, flowing down uh, there. And you remember Jesus talked about uh, that you'd be given the Spirit and He'd become rivers of living water flowing out of you here. Uh, Purest crystal uh, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb. This comes from uh, God's Son having died for us and, and so on. That's the origin of this. The river of life and the tree of life. In verse 2, it says uh, that uh, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The diversity of the fruit, the regularity of the bearing, the curative quality of the leaves here, the tree of life. Remember you had in the Garden of Eden a tree of life, and, and uh, they were barred from that tree of life after they sinned. Uh, well, Jesus died on the tree. Jesus is the tree of life in a sense. And uh, uh, this is for the healing of the nations as we take, take that all over the world here. And it flows out of the throne of the Lamb. And uh, so throughout the entire present age, those leaves are for that. The throne of God in the Lamb, in verse 3, it says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God in the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. And they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. In uh, Psalm chapter 17 and verse 15, the psalmist says, and I, in righteousness, I will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. And uh, that's, that's what we will see there. Uh, the exaltation of his servants, the illumination of them, the vision that they have there. Uh, boy, this is wonderful. Now, reading on down, let's move over to your next outline uh, where you have the uh, Spirit and the Bride who say, Come, Revelation 22, 6 to 21. It says that uh, the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. Here's the attestation by this angel. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Uh, the 
faithfulness of these words, the, the uh, process of the revelation. God, through his prophets, has revealed this. And the purpose to show his servants what must soon take place. Uh, this, of course, was taking place from John's day on here. And, of course, uh, ultimately, there'd be this new heaven and new earth at the end of all this. Uh, <clears throat> the quickness of Christ's coming. In verse 7, it says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy in this book. I'm coming soon. And uh, you say, well, it's been 2,000 years since John wrote that. That's right. And God's clock is on time. And uh, every generation of Christian is meant to believe with the expectancy it might be in my day. That's the whole attitude he would have us to have. Uh, the blessedness of keeping these sayings. When it says there, uh, blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy in this book. And you live like it's telling us to live here. You are blessed. Not enough to hear it, but to keep it. Uh, the attestation by John, that's the attestation by the angel, but his first-hand account in verse 8. It says, John, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. I saw all this, the angels, I saw all these visions. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you. And with your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book, worship God. Don't worship me. And, uh, and then the initiation of these events. In verse 10, then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Now let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. Now, uh, what does this mean uh, when it says here, uh, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong? What that's saying is the fixation of our condition, the exhortation to be prepared. When this happens, when Christ returns, it's too late. At that point, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. In a sense, it's too late to change. It's too late to repent. Uh, the fixation of your condition at that point is what's being dealt with there. Uh, uh, and so here men divided uh, into two great classes. And uh, he, uh, he says, let him who does wrong continue to do so. Just too late now. Uh, let him who does right continue to do so. The fixation of this. Uh, the examination at Christ's coming. In verse 12, it says, Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The quickness of his coming. I am coming soon. The purpose of his coming, to reward, whether it's uh, punish some or Bless others. Uh, <clears throat> don't become hardened. Repent because at my coming I will immediately separate people and deal with them. No more opportunity to repent is the idea. And uh, the eternity of his nature. I'm the beginning and the end. The first and the last. So on. Now, <clears throat> the uh, exclusion of the contaminated. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes and have made their have made and who that they may have right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So you wash your robes, of course, in the blood of the Lamb. You place your faith in Christ and surrender your will to Him. You have a right to the tree of life. You have eternal life. You have this communion. You're part of the city. Uh, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside the city and in hell, in effect, are the dogs, the, the people who live in this immoral way and who haven't changed, who haven't repented. Uh, outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts and sexually immoral murderers, so on. I was uh, part of a panel this week of ministers at uh, Leadership Birmingham, uh, which is a program that they draft about 50 people a year into. The different companies send people, and uh, several of the fellows there were from our church uh, going through, uh, presidents of their corporations or whatever. And uh, uh, once a month, this group meets all day, and they study different things in the city. They study the crime situation and they visit the jails they talk to the sheriffs on they study the uh, education situation they visit the schools they meet with the board of education etc I went through this myself 10 or 15 years ago <clears throat> and uh, ever since I've been on the panel of ministers and one day you're, you're dealing with religion and that was that was this past week and uh, they were on the panel of ministers uh, uh, the lady head of the gay and lesbian metropolitan church here and uh, next to her was the pastor of the local church we were in down, downtown church uh, 16th street backwards I was next next to me was lady pastor of First Presbyterian Church downtown and next to her was a Jewish rabbi of Temple Emmanuel uh, next to her was a Muslim next to him was a Muslim and next to him was a uh, another pastor here in the city of uh, Episcopal Church and uh, so the question was uh, raised about uh, homosexuality and what is your church's stand on homosexuality well obviously the lady who's a pastor of the homosexual church you know and uh, you just sensed in a sense uh, that uh, well let me Next was the pastor of that local church. He said his church had no stand on it. They were, this was not an issue that they took a stand on. I was next, and I read from the sixth chapter of First Corinthians. You might want to look there. First uh, Corinthians chapter six and verse nine. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And uh, I said, you notice there at uh, 
people who practice those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that described me at one period of time. I, I was sexually immoral there. All of us are born with a sinful nature, and I was never attracted to men, but I was attracted to women. And, uh, and the way that was to be fulfilled was within the marriage relation, and I went far outside of that. And uh, so I was sexually immoral. Uh, and you come on down and you've got others who describe me. You notice it says, uh, such were some of you. I said, uh, if you've got an orientation where you're attracted to a person of the same sex, it's not, a, it's not sinful to have that orientation. It is sinful to indulge that. And if you practice that, it says you won't go to heaven. Uh, you're not in the kingdom of God. You won't be in the kingdom of God. But you can be forgiven. <clears throat> and notice these people had lived that way. And then... He says, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified uh, uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of a God. You heard about Christ, you surrendered your will, you acknowledged your sin, you trusted Him as the one who died for your sin and rose from the dead, Son of God, and uh, you were forgiven, you were cleansed, but you were changed, so you didn't live that way anymore. This is how they had lived, they didn't live that way anymore. That's what Scripture teaches. And so that's our stance. And... Uh, it would be totally unfaithful to Christ not to say that, and it would not be loving to a homosexual not to say this. If I love the homosexual, I have to warn the homosexual about this. Well, the lady next to me, the First Presbyterian Church pastor, she said that her denomination is very torn up over this, and that several years ago, they've been torn up for ten years, and a debate over whether to ordain homosexuals and uh, whether... Uh, to marry them and uh, that they had a vote two years ago she said where the vote was 55 to 45 nationally not to do that not to ordain and so on but that their local church is torn up over it and she struggles with it but she's going to stay with what her denomination says she said uh, then uh, uh, the uh, Jewish rabbi he said well they didn't have any problem with homosexuality it wouldn't surprise him if the next uh, pastor of the synagogue the next leader of the synagogue after him was homosexual and uh, that they have uh, a cantor who have had cantors who are homosexual that's fine uh, next was a Muslim he agreed with me <coughs> and uh, <laughs> 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 and uh, next was uh, the Episcopal pastor and uh, uh, he said his denomination had been torn up over it and uh, uh, they uh, had a lot of struggles over it and that we must not come across as arrogant or having the truth uh, and he offers his thoughts as a gift and he'd heard a, another Presbyterian minister who made a great statement to the effect that uh, what Luther should have said instead of here I stand no no there, with the society, there we walk. Not here I stand. Well, uh, as I read Revelation, it's there I stand. Uh, here I stand, excuse me. Here I stand that, uh, that uh, we're warned about uh, uh, not watering this down and, and warning those that they cannot enter if they practice these things. And so much of our society does practice these things. And it's the church's job uh, not to blow an uncertain trumpet. And no matter how unpopular it gets. And as I sense the 
audience, I, they, I, I was out of accord with where a lot of the audience was. It just that's seemed to be where our society is is heading here. How uh, the and we live in the Bible Belt. What is it like elsewhere? You know, uh, but uh, uh, the uh, we see here the exhortation to be prepared and the exclusion of the contaminated. Uh, the attestation uh, by Jesus in verse 16 of chapter 22. It says, "I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David." And the bright and morning star. He's the root of David. He, David uh, uh, comes from him in a sense. He creates him and and all that. And uh, yet he's he himself is from David. Uh, and uh, the bright and morning star. The invitation to come to Jesus. The spirit and the bride say come. And let him who hears say come. So the church says come. The bride says come. And let into every individual Christian say come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Free gift of salvation here. Not something we earn or deserve. Uh, whosoever will, but of course we won't unless he draws us. Uh, and uh, then uh, the admonition concerning the modification of this revelation, concerning watering it down. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from the book of prophecy, God will take from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Uh, don't don't water it down. Uh, awesome warning. And I, it's said about the book of Revelation, but you get the feeling it applies to the whole of Scripture, in a sense here. And uh, and then uh, the final aspiration, desire for His coming, verse twenty. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, uh, how blessed uh, the prospect of those who are in Christ. We are part of this city. We look forward to when it's all completed. And uh, no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. The former things have passed away. That's our inheritance. Join heirs with Jesus Christ. Good grief. <laughs> Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And uh, how sad the prospect of those who are still in their sin. And how important that we issue that invitation. Uh, he who is a thirst, come. I was thirsty and I came. It's wonderful. You come too. How important that we live that out and we back it up. With, uh, with our daily living and everything else and our prayers and so on. Let me stop there and see what questions you might have. Of course, this section is not as controversial as the others that we've had, but we can go back to the others. I think it's primarily talking about the book of Revelation, but I believe it's applicable to the whole of Scripture. Sure do. Why should the book of Revelation be any more important than the rest of Scripture, in a sense? And so our, the principle, I think, would apply to all of Scripture. Good question. Do I feel like the Scriptures emphasize the not practicing of homosexuality more than other immoral acts like lying. Look at, uh, in answer to that, look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul, pick up with verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, 
Well, the Apostle Paul is talking about the light that men have from creation and how they go against that light. In verse 18 of chapter 1 of Romans, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, well, since the creation of the world, his, his invisible qualities, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish minds were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and beasts and birds and uh, animals and reptiles. Uh, and uh, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, here they resist light and they create these images and they worship their images and in response to that, God ceases restraining them and gives them over to these vile passions and just lays the reins on the neck there instead of restraining them. And God restrains in various ways. He restrains through through those warning trumpets. Uh, he restrains through government. Uh, he restrains uh, uh, <clears throat> through uh, uh, His law. When His law is promulgated, that puts fear into men and restrains some. Uh, and He restrains in various ways. There comes a point where He ceases restraining. And he just gives an individual or a society over to pursue these things. And it, gets, it starts spiraling down. And it gets worse and worse. And notice what it says here. Therefore, in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the great in their bodies of one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped the, creator, the creature more than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. And uh, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to have been done. And they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife. Well, so here's murder and all these other things, but it does seem a spiraling circle down and, and halfway down the circle or something, he brings out homosexuality here. It's uh, When a society starts moving, like our society, more and more in the direction of homosexuality, it's, it's going downward. And uh, it, it's all, all sins are bad. Some sins are worse than other sins. Some sins are uh, indicating uh, uh, just more and more of this hardness and, and so on. So it, I, I think that kind of answers what you're saying. Yes. Uh, I think we ought to condemn both, of course, uh, heterosexual acts and homosexual acts. I do think that when a society begins to more and more accept the homosexual acts, it is a step further down. Well, the way the way they handle this is they say something like this. They'll say, well, you've got to be very careful how you interpret Scripture. That remark was made and. and context there and said they would say they, what they would say oftentimes is they would say if you were born with a homosexual orientation or if and they would say you were born that way or something I wouldn't say you're born that way but they would say if you were born with a homosexual orientation uh, then it's all right for you to engage in this that wouldn't be perverse 
that wouldn't be against nature is the way they would interpret this. But they say if you have you're attracted to heterosexual, but you engage in homosexual, then that's wrong. So that's the way they would handle that passage, which is of course really twisting the passage around. I don't know how much melding there's been. I think these these different positions are still fairly clearly distinguished uh, uh, in recent literature. Although I haven't I haven't focused a lot on this in recent years, but. Uh, I think probably the, the four different positions we've detailed, the uh, mill and so on, and you get your preterist and idealist and that type thing. I think those are still fairly clear-cut, the different writers, how they handle those. Uh, let's look at Matthew 25, which is what he's referring to there, uh, where you have uh, Jesus talking about uh, the return of Christ there. And... Uh, Oh, excuse me, Matthew 24, in uh, verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And notice back up to uh, uh, verse uh, 34. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my world will never pass away. Say, so, well, that generation did pass away and it hadn't happened. Well, is he, this is your Mount Olivet Discourse, and he's weaving two things together. He's weaving together the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and the return of Christ, because one was a type of the other, this destruction of Jerusalem and the tribulation there. As we can see, there's going to be this great battle here again around Jerusalem and so on. And so one was a type of the other. Well, uh, these things shall come to pass. The destruction of Jerusalem would come to pass before that generation passed away. Heaven and earth wouldn't pass away at that point, but uh, uh, they would. it would pass away. And it says in verse uh, 36, No one knows about that day or hour, this coming of Christ for the passing away of heaven and earth, or even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. People would be unprepared, is what he's saying. Uh, no one knows the time. Only the Father, even the Son at that point, didn't know the time. And uh, it says, As in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding in a handmill, one will be taken, the other left. One is taken in the sense of caught up to meet Christ in the air. The other is left to this destruction that's going to come immediately uh, as the earth is destroyed and so on. And they'll be unprepared. Uh, these, uh, they'll be eating and drinking. Nothing wrong with eating and drinking, marrying, giving and marriage. Just they'll be involved in other things. They won't be uh, waiting this, expecting this. They won't be prepared. And it will catch them off guard is what's being said there. Uh, am I answering your question there, Al? Now, it could be that there'd be a war going on or whatever, and, and as they may, but even still, they are, they are not prepared for this. <clears throat> yes, I believe that when Christ returns, that we will be caught up uh, and transformed. Our bodies will be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye so that our bodies become immortal bodies. Those who've been dead, their bodies will be raised. We'll be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And uh, their souls will come back with Him, their bodies raised, and our bodies caught up with them, changed as we're caught up, and uh, it'll be a literal rapture. But it's not a, uh, that's, that's just a company, his coming. It's not prior to his coming.
a good question. Is the new heaven and new earth going to be this? I don't think it'd be this earth. It talks about the earth is burned up and so on. Uh, but uh, it could be like this earth, and it could be that we're going to dwell on earth. The meek shall inherit the earth, that we'll dwell on the earth, the new earth, no more disease or sickness and so on. We, In a sense, you'll have heaven and earth combined here. Uh, the universe is going to pass away. I don't know what you're going to do about the universe. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, we'll wait and see on all that. Uh, well, uh, John Calvin, you know, uh, he didn't say anything about that. Uh, uh, <laughs> Calvin wrote a book. Uh, he wrote a commentary on every book in the Bible except Revelation. He's smart, you know. He, he, uh, okay. Well, let's stop at that point and uh, appreciate so much your being with us for these weeks. Next week now, we're... We're probably in a sanctuary on Sunday night with, uh, at the same time, though, 6.30, and actually we've got supper at 5.30 here uh, ahead of time, and we'll do that each night, Sunday through Wednesday night, and then Thursday and Friday night we'll be in home, so on. So great, great opportunities coming up uh, this next weekend, and I look forward to that. Uh, let's have prayer. Father, we thank you for your word again. We thank you for this uh, great book and the encouragement it is, the comfort it is, and the challenge. and the warning, and we ask that we might take all of that to heart. In Jesus' name, amen.